say a picture speaks a thousand words, and I think in certain cases that actually is the case, certainly with neuroscience. Um, and arguably, perhaps for creativity, it's something that can lead to new insights and ways of seeing things. But perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. I'd like to start, perhaps, with this very innocent-looking picture. Um, and I want to assume that probably not everyone here is a demon neuroscientist. Is that the case? Hands up if you're all closet neurologists, really. Because uh, I know one or two are, I can recognize some biomedical friends here. But um, for those of you who are not, the reason I have this particular picture up is because I think, if you like, it frames the nature of the journey we're about to go on, um, which starts by holding in one hand a human brain, as indeed I did when, a long time ago now, um, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was a student here, and um, actually did a human brain dissection. And what happens is they wheel in these trolleys, and um, the brains are, of course, in a fixative to preserve them for dissection, and you're therefore wearing gloves. But I remember thinking, as I held the brain in one hand, rather as in this picture, if I wasn't wearing gloves, um, what would happen if I got a bit of brain tissue under my fingernail? Uh, would that be the bit that somebody loved with? Would it be a memory? Would it be a hope? And how can you possibly go from something as insubstantial and as private and as important and as engaging as a hope or a fear or a memory or love to this rather boring-looking sludgy stuff that you can get under your fingernail? And that's really why I did neuroscience, because it was astonishing that somehow that happens. Somehow that happens. How does it happen? Um, and indeed, one could say now, unless you've already fallen asleep, you know, the experience you're having currently, no one else can share. No one else can hack into firsthand, however close you are to the person sitting next to you, however articulate or poetic or indeed creative or insightful, no one can share firsthand the experience that you are currently, let's hope, still having, unless, of course, I say you've dozed off. So how does it happen that something that occupies the same universe as nasal hair or earwax or saliva um, or tooth enamel, how come that it gives you what it gives you and how come it makes you the person you are? How come that for the 100,000 years that human beings have stalked the planet, no one has a brain like yours? It might look a bit like it, but clearly you're a different person and it's not your heart or your lungs or your liver, obviously, because these are exchanged now with increasing facility with biomedical science. So what is it? about this part of your body, this very ordinary, banal-looking thing that can do, can do so much. And what we're going to do is briefly, I won't be arrogant enough to say answer that question, but we will look at the neuroscientist view, the neuroscientist story. So what we're going to do, um, now let me do this one, no? Sorry about this, I'm just rehearsing. Okay, what we're going to do, therefore, is to see how this sludgy brain can generate ideas, and indeed how ideas from the outside world, from uh, other people's creative input, can actually affect the way you think and you feel. Okay, so what I want to do now is to um, take you through a series of um, bottom lines, if you like, so that if you do find your mind wandering, the person next to you can nudge you whenever a number comes up, because these are the main conclusions of the points I want to make. Um, and it's always, as those of us academics will know, it's always wise to start with the conclusion. So I'm starting with the first conclusion, and that's the environment is key. So let's explore what this means, because in order to understand how an individual brain functions and why it's individual, we need to do that in order to understand the basis for creativity, which is quintessential, something that I would argue is the hallmark of the individual. So when you're born you're born with pretty much all the brain cells you'll have. And yet, 
somehow you're going to become a very different person. Um, I like to compare humans with goldfish, and I hope I don't offend anyone by saying, you know, let's be honest, goldfish don't have great personalities, do they? Um, and if your kid had a pet goldfish and the goldfish died, then you could sneak off while the child was at school, buy another goldfish, and no one would know any difference. Now, you couldn't do that with pet cats or dogs, and much as they might want you to, you certainly couldn't do it with their brothers or sisters. And this is because um, we human beings, par excellence more than any other species, um, would pride ourselves on our individuality. Cots and cats and dogs are individuals, even a hamster has individual little tendencies, but we more than any other species um, would make a claim to being unique since the 100,000 years we've been around. No one will ever be like you ever again. And even if you're a clone, an identical twin, no one is ever going to be like you, not even your twin. So what is it that makes us so special? Well, the clue lies into the fact, I think, that within the animal kingdom, there's many things we don't do particularly well. We don't run particularly fast. We don't see particularly well. We're not particularly strong compared to other species. But the clue to our individuality lies in our talent, a talent that we have that is superlative, uh, that means we occupy more ecological niches than any other species on the planet, and that is that we learn. And what I want to show you first is something that's called plasticity. That, of course, doesn't mean the brain is plastic, but rather from the Greek plastikos, to be molded, which means that we, more than any other species, although others do it to a greater or lesser extent, we adapt to our environment. And what I want to argue is it's this adaption this personalization of the brain to any environment in which you are placed that actually is the clue to your individual experiences and to your individuality. Because if you have individual experiences, then guess what? You're going to become an individual. So let's look then at the start of what we could see on our journey towards creativity, which is your uniqueness. So you're born with pretty much all the brain cells you'll ever have, as I said. And here you can see... Um, for the specialist, please forgive me for using vernacular terms, the blobby bits of brain cells, the stringy bits of connections. And you can see that in the first two years of life, the growth of the brain postnatally is not caused by proliferation of neurons per se, but by the growth of the connections between them. And hence, even if you are a clone, an identical twin, these connections now are going to be molded and shaped and crafted and strengthened by your individual life story your individual experience. What I'd like to do is show you now two examples of that. And these are so famous that perhaps everyone has heard of them. Um, the first involved London taxi drivers. These are both quite uh, established studies. They've been around for a long time, but they are still very worthy and exciting for all that. And this actually captured the attention of the media. Um, as everyone knows, London taxi drivers have to pass an ominous test called the knowledge, uh, which is an oral examination where after several years of very careful and long study, um, they are asked by their examiner uh, to recite off how they will go on certain routes through London, how they will go from A to B with respect for the one-way systems and the like. And they have to do this in the oral exam without recourse to a manual, just using what we call working memory. So they have a huge burden on their memory. Now, compared to most other people. Now, in this ingenious study... They looked at the scans of London taxi drivers compared to people of the same age. And an area that was particularly interesting was an area called the hippocampus, which you can see here, 
which is one of the areas in the brain related to memory. I'm showing you this picture because for the non-scientists, like, I think it's a rather lovely picture, actually, and it shows how, um, if you're interested in how arts and science can actually synergize, I think it's just a rather lovely example of the sort of thing you might want on your wall at home. It's just a nice picture. Um, but what actually you can see are the brain cells stained one in 10, so you can appreciate in stark relief the branches that come out of them. And as I said, this is an area, the hippocampus, related to memory. Now, what's amazing is in the scans of London taxi drivers, what they found was that in taxi drivers, the hippocampus was bigger in uh, their brains than in um, the controls. A fact not lost on London taxi drivers. They've all heard of this study. Next time you take a London cab, ask them if they've heard of the hippocampus, and they have. Um, now, what does this show us? It doesn't show us that if you have a big hippocampus, that predisposes you to being a London taxi driver, because the difference was more marked for the longer they had been driving. And it's really echoing a very familiar theme, and I think most people have heard of this in relation to the brain, the use it or lose it principle. We all know that when you exercise muscle groups in sport, they get stronger and larger. The brain is similar in many ways. That is to say, when brain cells are more active, they too prosper and strengthen, and this is manifest in the, in the scans. Now, I doubt if few people here would aspire to being a taxi driver, but many of you or your kids may play the piano. And this is the second and perhaps even more fascinating example of many that are out there now in the literature of so-called plasticity of the human brain. So this experiment involved three groups of adult human volunteers, none of whom could play the piano, a five-day experiment. Um, a word of advice, if ever you get to volunteer for such an experiment, try and not be in the control group because they stared at a piano for five days. Nothing much else, <laughs> just stared at it. Um, uh, the, luckier, the luckier group uh, learnt five-finger piano exercises, and what we're going to look at now um, are the brain scans over the five days comparing the people that were unfortunate enough to be in the control group compared to those who were playing the five-finger piano exercises. But there's a surprise. I have a surprise in store for you, and that is a third group that I think, I'm sure there's some philosophers here in the audience. Can I just ask, any philosophers here? And they never put their hands up. Yeah, there's one putting their hand up, yeah. Yeah, well, probably, yeah. So um, I'm sure there's others who haven't even dared do that. And I think they may find this one particularly interesting. So let's look at, um, at what happens over five days to your brain. So look first at the top panel, where you can see going from left to right, um, there's no change. The brain is literally unimpressed by uh, staring like this. Um, however, the second group who've learnt the five-finger piano exercise, can you see the astonishing change in the brain territory, um, even over five days, uh, relating to the digits? Even just looking um, at those five days, you can see a huge change. But what I would like to challenge philosophers with, in a sort of rhetorical sense, is the third group here. And these are my surprise group that I find intriguing, because these people just imagined they were playing the piano. Now, there's, I think, various... We could stop right here and just talk about this slide all evening, possibly, but um, I think there's various thoughts that, uh, that we can articulate. Um, the first is that, clearly, there's no difference, really, between the mental and the physical groups. So, really, as far as the brain is concerned, the exciting issue here is not the contraction of the muscle, but it is the thought that has preceded it. Now, there's a very interesting um, idea here, um, first articulated by someone called Hornikowitz, who several decades ago developed the therapy that is still used for the movement disorder, Parkinson's disease. And he came up with this wonderful statement. He said, thinking is movement confined to the brain. Thinking is movement 
confined to the brain. And I want to come back to that idea. If when it's towards the end, and I'm talking about thinking again, if I haven't mentioned the quote, can someone put their hand up and say, remember the quote, because I think it's related. The other issue is, of course, you can't really get too um, high-minded high about mental versus physical. And certainly, when I first started off doing science, I was used to um, people thinking that you have these exotic feelings coming almost in the ether and mental events and the mind, and uh, that could be easily separated from the squalor of the chemistry of the bump and the grind of the brain cells, such as people like me trafficked in, and sort of chemistry was a dirty word, and people went away at parties and didn't come back and talk to you because they thought you were some nerd. Um, but you can see that really the physical and the mental are related in ways that we poorly understand, of course, but even a thought, even something as insubstantial but as exotic and as private as a thought is somehow leaving its mark literally on your brain. This is what plasticity is. So how does this happen? Well, um, if you're a neuroscientist, then you're, I'm afraid you have to turn to animal brains because in order to look at the mechanics of how the brain is influenced by the environment, um, you can't just give people piano playing exercises and look at people driving taxis. You actually want to look at what's happening, how the neurons are changing. And what we're able to do is to look at rats that are good enough at learning and adapting. Um, and we use a rather nice situation called an enriched environment. Let me show an enriched environment with actually um, pictures from my own lab. And you can see here, um, here we have the rats in an um, environment where they're highly exploratory, as you know, they're highly exploratory creatures compared to the less fortunate counterparts in an ordinary lab cage. And you can see how happy these rats look, um, especially one on the right here, having a lovely time. Um, interaction with sort of little ladders and wheels and branches and so on. Now, this is from another study, but it's similar. If you look at a single brain cell from an animal in an ordinary isolated lab cage, then what you'll see is something like this. Um, again, this might be a strange-looking pattern to people that are, are not scientists, but the blobby bit is the brain cell and the branches we've talked about already. And um, I'd like you to focus on the branches and compare them with a brain cell from an animal um, that's been in an enriched environment. So let's look at that. Here you can see, I hope, a clear difference, that in the animals that have had this sort of interactive, exploratory, much more stimulating environment, so the branches have proliferated. Now, why is this interesting or important? Well, let's go back to the idea that you use it or you lose it, and the more active you exercise muscles, so they will prosper and get stronger and larger. And the brain, the way the brain does it, is that when you make a brain cell active, and you're doing that when it's interacting with an environment, as here. When it's active continuously, it too, it too will grow, but it won't just grow, it grows branches. Now, that's important because when you grow branches, you are increasing the surface area of the cell. And by increasing the surface area of the cell, you're freeing up more space to have the potential to make more connections. So let's just go through this. A stimulating environment where you're interacting and where your brain cell is busier, it's working harder, will respond eventually by growing more branches, which in turn increases the surface area, which in turn enables you, it gives you greater potential to make more connections with other brain cells. How does that translate to real life? Not that rats are not real life, but here we are. So here you have an injected brain cell, again a rather lovely one, showing thanks to the fluorescent dye you can see the, um, the branches, but we can think of them more schematically as sort of information points, if you like, where you can link one thing to something else. Um, and one can even be more abstract and schematic, and this is a particularly 
Um, yeah, idiosyncratic one here, shopping, clothes, makeup, lipstick, beauty. Um, and of course, one could all have endless interactions and networks like this, where you, as you go through your life, you're making associations thanks to the connections, thanks to your personal experience. So the more branches you have on brain cells, the more connections you can make, and the more, I would argue, you see the world from a personal standpoint. The world has a personal significance to you because you're seeing one thing in terms of something else thanks to your experience. I'd like to go further and say that the more you can hook things up in this way, that is what we mean by understanding. So um, when we understand something, I'd like to suggest that that is because we can see one thing in terms of something else. And the more we can see things in terms of other things, the more deeply we understand them. I'd like to suggest that. Let me give you a, a literal example that doesn't put me in a very good light, but I think um, does actually illustrate the point. So I'll sacrifice my self-image for um, making a point. Um, I have a much younger brother who's 13 years younger than me, and when I was 16 and he was therefore three, um, I used to torture him all the time. And the torture would take many forms, for example putting his water pistol in the oven and letting him see it melt because he was squirting at me and it irritated me. Um, but more relevant to this was, um, I thought it was great fun to force him to learn Shakespeare when he was three. So one of the things he used to be made to learn was, and he still remembers this actually, it's quite funny. Um, but anyway, he used to have to learn um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, I'm sure we all know this, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last limits of recorded time. Someone said that must have gone down a storm in playgroup having a three-year-old coming in and saying it's... Uh, but anyway, the whole point is, as you'll know, the passage goes on, um, out, out, brief candle, life is but a poor player. Now, had you said to him, Graham, that being his name, Graham, what does it mean? What does it mean, out, out, brief candle? Do you understand what that means? He could well have said, um, yes, when I have a candle on my birthday cake, can I blow it out? Because, you know, literally, it means, that's what it means. But, of course, we all know it's a metaphor for death. Now, he couldn't have seen that. He was, after all, only three years old. But to truly understand that line from Shakespeare, you have to see the extinction of the candle in terms of the extinction of life. You understand it more deeply than my three-year-old brother could ever have done. So we can now think of when we're born, therefore, in the words of the great psychologist William James, into a booming, buzzing confusion. Lovely word. And we evaluate the world from a purely sensory perspective, how sweet, how fast, how cold, how bright. But gradually, as the weeks go to months and the months go to years, gradually, as you're living your life, so certain visual patterns, if they're persistent and consistent, if they keep presenting, will then be mapped or mirrored or drive connections between your brain cells and no one else's. So if you see the same visual pattern, let's say accompanied by certain smells and colors and, and sounds, gradually, this erstwhile abstract scrabble of sensation will start to form into what we call a cognitive take on the world. From the Latin, of course, cogito, I understand. Meaning that instead of it being a conglomeration of patterns and colors and smells, it'll be your mum. And if mum features again and again and again in your life, as one hopes she does, more connections will form, as we've seen. More associations, like with the taxi drivers, like with the piano players. You'll have more and more associations around mum. She will have increasing significance to you that is highly personalized in a way um, that others won't appreciate. And similarly, we can have an example here, and I'm sure you may recognize some of these people, actually. Let me give you an example. Here I am with some colleagues. Sadly, there's been someone, one of them has at least has died, um, but you may recognize others. Um, for many, possibly, perhaps people that are new to Oxford, these people will just look like generic middle-aged men in suits and ties. Um, for me, of course, there are David and David and Martin and Chris and so on. 
Um, and of course, the reason I particularly like this picture is we've just signed a big agreement that day. So it brings back very special memories to me that no one, but no one here, could appreciate, unless David Vaux is in the audience, no one else would appreciate this. And I'm sure that you could have similar events, similar people, um, who are very dear and close to you, where there's a very deep and personalized meaning because of certain associations it triggers that are not apparent in the physical properties of the people, so that they would be seen by others as just generic men, women, and children. For you, they are deeply meaningful, thanks to the personalized connections of your brain. So I'd like to suggest to you then that the personalization of the brain is what we call the mind. It's not some airy-fairy alternative, a philosophical option to the physical brain. It is the physical brain, but the personalization of that brain through the unique dynamic configurations of your neuronal connections driven in turn by your unique experiences. So here we are living our lives. I love this particular picture because everyone here has a unique trajectory. Everyone has a past, a present, and a future in a linear consequence of cause and event. And I want to come back to that as well. And I love this picture because everyone is doing their own thing. No one has your life story. story. No one has your connections. Everyone here, I'm sure, will have passed an exam. Well, obviously, they will pass an exam. That can't be unpassed. Now, what you've done with that, of course, can vary. You know, it could be that you failed other exams or you've not made the most of what you initially studied or that you went on to do even more passing of exams and so on. But nonetheless, these events, and I'll come back to this later, are fixed in time and space. They cannot be reversed. They are there. They can be offset and compensated for and enhanced, but they can't be changed. They're there. They're there forever. And they're part of you. And somehow, they embed in your brain cell connections leading to the next thing and the next thing so that you have this lovely dialogue with the outside world and that is what makes you so special. So you start off in this one-way street, how sweet, how fast, how cold, how bright, passive recipient. But as that drives the connections, so now we enter into a dialogue. Now events and people and objects will be evaluated in terms of the existing associations, their personalized significance. And that ongoing experience will at the same time upgrade and change those connections, so there's a constant dialogue. So the world will have a meaning to you, a significance to you, a view for you that it has for no one else, um, that has the checks and balances that helps you navigate the world and understand it, and gets more enhanced as you live your life, as you're constantly upgrading and changing the dialogue. Sadly, with dementia, of course, it is that dismantling of the connections that retreats the person back into childhood, where they become confused and disorientated where they understand less and less because, sadly, the checks and balances, the means by which you are navigating the world, are no longer so easily available. Okay, so that's the next point I want to make, if that is the case, as here it is embedding itself on your brain, that if you accept that, we now turn to the current world. And what I'd like to do now is just explore for a moment the current technology of the screen and how it's unprecedented in changing how we think and feel because I think that will both be good and bad for creativity. So I know we haven't as yet got onto creativity um, but I think this is important to see whether we could have greater creative experiences or less um, given the impact of the cyber world. Okay, so um, let's just look at some statistics in case people um, are not aware that the cyber world is having great impact in unprecedented ways. This is one study from the States a year or two ago uh, we don't have to go through all the stats. Let's just look at these figures here. Um, and here we have kids between 13 and 17 spending, um, over half of them are spending 30 plus hours a week in recreational use of screen technologies. So um, this is not doing homework. This is um, four or five hours a day 
um, engaged in the kind of cyber activities we're going to look at. Now, I've often been demonized as some kind of Luddite, and let me say from the outset, what I'm trying to do is to get people to just think and talk about this, that to say our computer's good and bad is about as naive as saying our car's good or bad. And I've never actually said that. What I have said is that if the brain is sensitive to the environment, as I hope I've persuaded you that it is, if the environment is so different for so much of one's working or waking hours, then surely the brain will be changing. Most neuroscientists will take it as a given that changes must be occurring. Whether they're good or bad, of course, that's what we have to discuss and explore. And let's hope we can have open minds and look at all the different aspects of this, um, because I think otherwise we might be doing a disservice. Now, just to start off with some good things, therefore, this is a wonderful book written a while ago now, but very articulate and persuasive by Stephen Johnson. The title speaks for itself, and he argues that many good things occur for people that are um, engaged in um, a large degree, almost obsessional degree of cyber activity. Among them, there's enhanced working memory, and another in particular is um, a raised IQ, because the kind of abilities that you need to do well in an IQ test, he argues, um, are similar to the skills you're rehearsing when you are playing computer games. And of course, we've seen that uh, the human brain will adapt to whatever it's asked to do, and the more you do it, the better you're going to become at it, so this is not really a surprise. However, he says, isn't it a shame that just because we have an increase, and this is documented in various societies, um, an increase in IQ um, across the board, how come we're not seeing an increase um, in insights into the economic situation or into the Middle East crisis um, or indeed into creativity? So although you can process information rapidly and well and you can assess complex scenarios with working memory and bear in mind rules and apply them and give rapid responses, information is not knowledge and mental processing and fast mental agility is not understanding and I'm not trying to disparage um, mental processing and IQ tests of course but we shouldn't confuse them and conflate one or the other but nonetheless it's good um, that you might be able to do this. Now what about other activities? What about social networking sites for example? What kind of impact might they have on how we think and feel? Well I'd just like to um, look at some statistics here. When we communicate normally face to face we're using a whole range of skills as I'm sure we're all aware. Eye contact and body language makes up for over half of the impact you'll have when you meet someone. And I'm not going to grab a victim in the audience, but we all know that if you stare someone in the eye, um, it really freaks them, unless you're madly in love with each other, of course. If you just stare, because it's very different. But if you stare someone in the eye, um, after a while they start to feel very uncomfortable, which is why I'm not going to do this um, to anyone in the audience. Similarly, if you don't look someone in the eye at all, then of course they feel very uncomfortable and. Um, so eye contact depends very much on how well you know someone, on the kind of relationship you have with them, how long you've known them, and it's something that is cultural and that we learn clearly in terms of interpersonal communication, as is body language. Similarly, voice tone, you don't have to speak a foreign language to know if someone's angry with you or they're happy because the tone, the rate, and the volume, again, has a huge impact. There's then pheromones, there's sneaky chemicals that predispose you, or you know how sometimes you just don't like someone or you sometimes just get on with someone that could well be pheromones, still poorly understood in humans, and above all, physical contact, which is perhaps the most powerful of all. My father died last February now, almost a year ago, and obviously um, I was gutted, as was my family, and I'm sure you've all been through, if not bereavement, through devastating experiences. And we all know that if someone hugs you, that is 1,100 times more powerful than if someone says, oh, sorry, your dad's just died. 
if they just give you a hug. It's so much more powerful. Um, but if you get it wrong, if you hug the wrong person at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong way, then heavens, that is so difficult. So these things, eye contact, body language, voice and pheromones and physical contact are hugely important in how we read empathy in others, how we communicate with each other, and words only have 10% of impact. And yet, eye contact, body language, voice tone, pheromones, and physical contact are not available. Let's have the words up. These are not available. Let me get, sorry, let me just go back. Well, bear with me on this. Yeah, um, these are not available on, uh, on Facebook. So, um, so it worked on this one, but not on that one for some reason. Um, now, tying in with that, therefore, is would we expect to see a decline in empathy? And I'd like to stress that I know this is a trend that has not been causally linked to the rise of the digital native, but nonetheless, there is an interesting coincidence between this kind of study from the University of Michigan showing in 1,400 college students that empathy has declined in the last 30 years. And if you read on in that report, they say that's particularly marked in the last 10, which is when arguably the digital culture, the cyber culture, has really taken off. That could be related to another interesting issue, um, which is in cases of people with autistic spectrum disorder, which I'll remind you is a, uh, an impairment, a problem in empathy and understanding how other people might be feeling, that autistic people are very comfortable in Second Life and in other cyber activities. Why is this? Well, again, I think this um, should be explored, but I would argue that when we are on Second Life or other cyber activities, we are not making use of our empathy skills. We are therefore all the same, and actions are speaking louder than words, and therefore those kind of skills of reading body language and voice tone and hugging someone um, for interpersonal relationship are not needed, so we're all on a level playing field. Um, I'm aware that, as I say, these are trends, but there were trends in the 1950s with smoking and cancer, and look at the demonization and the hostility of the tobacco companies when eventually people like Sir Richard Dole were finally able to establish a causal link. And I think that we should at least try and see whether or not this might be the case. Try and see whether these trends, these coincidental trends are similar. Um, it would also, I think, impact, and I think this is very important, on identity, on how you see yourself. Um, if you're constantly connected with others, if you're constantly evaluating yourself and defining yourself by however many hits you get or how much recognition you get on your Facebook site, if you're constantly feeling the need to read out to others and to receive input from others and you're all the time connected, might that actually have a negative effect? There's a very good book by someone called Sherry Turkle, who's a psychologist at MIT called Alone Together, where she argues just that. She argues the more connected people are, paradoxically, the more isolated they feel because their real identity is being sanitized by Facebook profile pages and so on, and um, simple, simple um, phrases. For example, with blogging, let's look at that. Um, the history of blogging, 1999, I just have to tell someone about this thing my cat did today. 2004, oh my God, cat pictures. YouTube, 2005, moving cat pictures. Then that pinnacle of civilization, Twitter, 1, 1 p.m., cat just sneezed, 102, cat sneezed again, 104, cat hasn't sneezed recently, getting worried. Um, is this self-conscious laughter, so guilt? As, are there a lot of people, even as I'm speaking, tweeting? Actually, I think there's not much signal in this room, so perhaps it's hard to, to tweet out. But um, what does this remind you of? And what does this say about our identity and how we are, if we're connected? Doesn't it remind you, especially this solipsistic flood of somewhat banal um, consciousness, 
Um, I mean, who cares what you had for breakfast and so on, but why do this? Um, could it not be that it's a little bit like someone else that we've seen? You know, um, look at me, mummy, I'm putting on one sock. Look at me, I'm putting on another sock. Uh, because if you don't look at me when I'm a little child, perhaps I don't exist. I need constant reassurance and constant feedback. Could it be that these people are an existential crisis? No, thank you. Um, but it could be that Twitter, of course, is a technology that's powerful. But again, I want to stress, it's not the technology that I'm knocking. It's the obsessional use of it and what it is doing to us if we um, mistake it for real relationships, real communication, real friends. Um, how one sees oneself, and I think that this is something we should, again, explore. So, social networking, reduced empathy, and less robust identity would be two possible ideas that we need to explore. And again, this might be relevant, again, to creativity. I want to keep coming back to that, because you have to have a robust identity in order to be having something to say. Let's think of someone like Einstein, or Shakespeare, or Mozart. What did these all have in common? Nothing whatsoever. Um, apart from the fact they had highly original brains, and they're highly creative, obviously. Um, part of, well, all I would argue, of what they had to say is because they were the unique people that they were. They had a unique view of the world. I don't think they were incessantly connected to each other all the time or to other people all the time. They were individuals, and that individuality, that distinction from others, I would argue perhaps is very important if we're going to have individual takes on the world. So what about gaming and what that does? Okay, so let's think about um, computer games. And you see these two little boys are actually not engaged with each other at all. They're actually playing with the computer. They're not playing with each other. Um, now, we know that when you do this, somehow the screen must be very exciting. Why else should it be that a two-dimensional environment that only stimulates hearing and vision out-competes out -competes a three-dimensional world um, with five senses? It has to be that what the screen is offering is super fast, super bright, super interactive compared to the boring old sludgy, three-dimensional, slow, messy, real world. And if that is the case, you can see, perhaps parents here know this, there's less listening when people are multitasking because the brain is being burdened with lots of different things it has to fragment and concentrate on. So the screen draws your attention to it and then it fragments as you are hypertexting and being alert, a bit like when you're driving. And yes, one can become proficient at that, but is that what we want necessarily. Um, tied in with that, again, is another trend, and I want to suggest it's a trend, but which ought to be explored, is this interesting increase in prescriptions for the drug methylphenidate, which some of you may not recognize, but I'm sure everyone would recognize um, Ritalin. This is the generic uh, name for, for attentional uh, drugs for attention deficit disorder. And as you can see, there's been this huge increase. Now, this could be because it's being prescribed more liberally. It could because ADHD is being more recognized as a medical condition and not mutually exclusive it might just be it might just be that if you take a young brain with the evolutionary mandate to actually um, adapt to the world around and the world around is a booming buzzing confusion of fast interaction and fast stimulation could it not be that the brain will adapt to that and hence therefore uh, when you go to school the child might um, have got used to, have adapted to an environment that mandates a short attention span and therefore uh, will fidget a bit and therefore be diagnosed with this disorder and then given this very powerful drug. And this is something that I do feel, again, we can't just dismiss. I'm not saying it is the case. I think it's a hypothesis that should be explored. Um, I'm often not because of the science. People say there's no science, but this is starting to come in now and this is one particular paper that came out last year 
showing that indeed now with brain scans you can see there are um, abnormalities and changes in the brain at the microstructural level uh, when people are obsessively working with the internet. So the effects of gaming then, I'd like to suggest, is fragmented attention and a shorter attention span possibly and increased recklessness. Now, what can we say about risk-taking and recklessness? One thinks that this might be tied up with computers because, um, clearly, if you're playing a game and someone becomes undead, then you're going to have a different attitude to life than the real world, where, sadly, that can't be the case. Um, if you ask a neuroscientist about recklessness, they will turn to a very famous story of someone called Phineas Gage. And Phineas Gage was the foreman on a railway gang who, one day in the 1860s, was pushing explosive... Um, in Vermont, um, down a hole so that they could then explode the railway that was obscuring the track. And uh, as always happens with explosive, it went off prematurely and drove the tamping iron through his skull. I'm about to show you a very gory picture, so if you are of a delicate nature and dinner's coming up, you might not want to see this. Um, but uh, the story was that he didn't die, he lived to tell the tale, he could see and walk and talk just fine. Um, in those heartless days, he actually went back to work with his hole through his head, um, and it was only then, as the weeks turned to months, that people noticed a difference, and that was that, among many other things, he had become very reckless. This is not good if you're working with explosive. Um, and in fact, he entered, had a far more lucrative living as a fairground freak, where he showed off his wound, earned a lot of money, and took up alcoholism, and died of alcohol poisoning. That's him. But um, the syndrome, the so-called frontal syndrome, was repeated with shrapnel wounds and other cases of head injury as medical science progressed, and uh, what it looks like is this area in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex is crucial. The prefrontal cortex occupies 33% um, of the human brain, but only 17% in chimps. It's a Johnny-come-lately, if you like, in evolution. And it seems, therefore, to be related to many sophisticated functions. Among them, when damaged or when under-functioning, um, the tendency to take more risks. Let's look at other conditions where there's an underactive prefrontal cortex and try and get a clue as to what might be happening. So here we can see um, a very interesting idea that obese people are more reckless. And of course, obesity um, is on the increase. So this is obese people being more reckless, there's the paper. And we know this is on the increase. And what's very interesting with this, another study, is that um, the heavier you are, that is to say the heavier your body mass index, so the less active is your prefrontal cortex. What does this mean? Well, bear with me, we're coming to this. Um, similarly, people with schizophrenia have an underactive prefrontal cortex, as shown here. And finally, schizophrenics can be linked to children in many respects. We won't, this is not electron schizophrenia. Um, because time is short, I won't go into too much about it, but it is not two people, as is often commonly thought. But what we do know with schizophrenia, which is a very sophisticated and complex condition, is that, among other things, the patient is easily distracted, that they have a shorter attention span, they have an inability to interpret proverbs, just like children. So if you say to a schizophrenic, um, what does it mean people who live in glass houses mustn't throw stones? They will say, well, if your house is made of glass and I throw a stone, stone will, the house will break. Like my brother would have said, oh, I blow a, blow a candle out on my birthday cake. So um, they can't interpret proverbs, and finally, in both cases, there's an underfunctioning prefrontal cortex. So what can this mean? Well, let's think about children then and people that eat a lot. Now, anyone who eats knows the consequence of eating, but the thrill of the food will trump the consequences of putting on weight. 
Anyone who gambles knows the consequences of gambling, but for compulsive gamblers, the thrill of the roulette wheel or the roll of the dice trumps the consequences you'll lose your money. And finally, a clue, I think, can come from if we look at schizophrenia, where here you see top left a very famous series of paintings of a cat, a cognitive cat, something everyone would recognize as a cat, but as the disease progresses, deteriorates in psychiatric terms, might improve artistically, of course, but bottom right, no one would recognize that as a cat. So could that be a clue as to what happens when the prefrontal cortex underfunctions? Could it be that what the thrill of the food, the excitement of the dice, and the back to the sensory from the cognitive means that the underactive prefrontal cortex is the senses are trumping the cognitive. The here and now, the thrill, the sensation is trumping. When I said this once, and um, I was talking to a journalist, I said, could this be what the screen technologies are? The yuck and the wow and the yuck and the wow. And because I talk fast, she mistyped it as yuck-a-wow. Um, but what was interesting was overnight, this became a craze, and there were 75,000 hits on Yucca. Uh, yeah. Now, what does this mean? And immediately, I tried to get the domain name, of course, but some nerd in New York had been there before me and got it, so here we have now the T-shirts with Yucca Wow, and the first church of Yucca Wow welcomes breezy people, breezy people to a world of no consequences. And perhaps that's the appeal nowadays, a world with no consequences. Yucca Wow, Yucca Wow, just yuck, live in the moment. And if that is the case, could we now distinguish or go back to the world of the screen and what that might mean? Think about it. We've just seen one's excited. That's to say you're aroused. Some are addicted. And in all cases, by definition, it must be rewarding. And in brain terms, there's one chemical that plays a very important part in all those conditions. It's not the chemical for that, but it mediates. And that's a chemical I'm sure you've all heard of called dopamine. And dopamine in the brain is like a fountain at the base of the brain. And what it does, it does many things, including involved in Parkinson's disease, of course, but for our purposes, what it does, it inhibits the prefrontal cortex. So now we can draw a um, distinction, if you like, I think in two modes, two basic modes of the human brain, where the prefrontal cortex is under-functioning and when it's active. We can talk about strong feelings versus thinking, sensory versus cognitive, if you like. The here and now versus the past, the present, and a fantasy. The external environment driving, moment by moment, what is happening as you interact. Here, the internal perceptions of your personalized life, your um, past, your present, and your planned future. Here, little meaning, what you see is what you get. A candle is a candle. Um, a glass house is a glass house. It doesn't mean anything. You're not seeing one thing in terms of another. And here, of course, a personalized meaning. Now, what's very interesting is that we can, and people have ever since we've stalked the planet, actually go back to a world where I would argue there's a reduced sense of self as opposed to this strong identity. Wine, women, and song, drugs and sex and rock and roll, I would argue all have in common one important thing, and that is an abrogation of the sense of self. You let yourself go. You blow your mind. You're out of your mind. And you do so, you get into these conditions, which we instantly pay money for. You do this by putting yourself in a booming, buzzing confusion, or by downhill skiing, or by dancing, or by eating, or by sex, and all the, or by taking drugs, which impair the connections between the brain cells. And all those have in common, whatever way it's done, this notion that you've gone back to the left-hand side. And we talk about, don't we, having a sensational time. If I said, now, let's all go out and have a cognitive time. <laughs> you know, I don't think that anyone would really be up for that. Yeah? Okay, so 
And this is mainly infants and children. This is older children and adults. This is therefore more dopamine, this less dopamine. Now, it was ever thus, and any Greek scholar here will know in the Baki, for example, Euripides Baki, they talk about the wine force and the bread force. But what's interesting, and what I, point I want to make, is that if you are now having an environment, an unprecedented, different type of environment that is skewing you to the left, could it be that we're going to have people with um, underactive prefrontal cortex um, if with these screen technologies? So we could go on and actually um, see how this maps out. Um, and indeed, in the Telegraph just recently, you may have seen this. Children who love video games have brains like gamblers. And actually, this is the reference here, if you're interested. And there's the picture, showing an area of the brain that releases dopamine, the ventral striatum, for those of you who are interested, um, is enlarged, um, correlated again with compulsive gaming. So yes, there's a lot of work to do, but let's not say there's no evidence. Let's not say that it's all just fine and that we're inviolate. We are not. We are mandated to adapt to our environment. Um, so I think we can think of a continuous cycle um, which is we start with intense stimulation of the screen, fast response, higher arousal, more dopamine is released. This will lead to reward-seeking, addictive-type behavior. Every drug of abuse, incidentally, has the final common path of releasing dopamine. Um, that would then inhibit the prefrontal cortex, emulating conditions of childhood schizophrenia, obesity, where the thrill of the moment trumps the consequences, sensation drive over cognition, therefore more of a drive for the screen, which is offering you that, and you'll have a vicious circle. Um, can I just ask the chair, how, many, how much longer have I got? We have some time, yeah, because, was, because we started late. It says here 712. It's not 712, is it? Okay, fine. Okay, so fine. just if I start doing things. So could that be... So how does this all relate to creativity? I didn't want to stop before we'd actually got on to creativity after. Um, that was the title. So this is something creative here, a painting. Um, now, what's interesting about this, bear in mind I'm a scientist, not an arts person, is obviously people don't look like this. So if we're trying to understand creativity, what are the steps or what are the conditions for which someone like me would try and find a neuroscientific counterpart? Well, the first thing is that clearly there's been a dissociation, a challenging of dogma with what's going on here. And could it be that other conditions, neurological conditions or things that we can relate to in the brain would qualify for um, having this dissociation? Well childhood where the connections are still growing, schizophrenia where there's dysfunctional connections, where there's a mismatch, drugs that I've mentioned already impair connections, and these things are all associated with people often having claims to being creative. But what I'd like to suggest is that although these conditions are often associated with claims to creativity, they don't guarantee it, and nor does creativity mandate that, because let's hope you can be creative without being a child, a schizophrenic, or a drug taker. So um, what could be the issue here? Well, here's my idea, um, which is that really what's at play here is that you are deconstructing, you're challenging dogma. And we all know in science, to be creative, you have to challenge dogma. A very interesting example in technology was the man who designed the Mini, I gather, where he actually challenged the dogma of having the engine in the front of the car. Why not have it in the back of the car? And look how that liberated how he saw things. So it may be that those conditions that we've just seen that do emulate or bring back conditions of childhood and schizophrenia, perhaps that could be one of the reasons. Perhaps that could be, if we harnessed it correctly, a first step in towards a greater creativity. So let's look finally at the third aspect of screen technologies, which is search engines, and how that might relate to this. 
Um, let's think back to my brother when he tried to understand what it meant, out-out brief candle, and the difficulty of translating metaphor um, to just visual imagery. Also, abstract concepts, if we think of something like honor, for example, a very interesting and nuanced word. If you Google on visual images, but honor, this is what you get up. Whenever I show this abroad, people always laugh at the queen being there as the first thing. But here we are, that's honor. Now, if you showed that to a Martian, how would they understand what honor was? They wouldn't, obviously. Um, and so, therefore, I worry, I really do worry about, in terms of people that are now getting adapted to a very visual and literal world, what they will make of metaphor and abstract concepts and if they will handle them in a similar way. Um, for example, um, when they are processing something, it might be that you can have this agile processing, but to understand something, to have meaning for something of what honor might mean, you have to see it in terms of other things. If you play a computer game to rescue the princess, for example, this one, the noble princess Yukihimi, I would challenge that you don't care about, I bet you don't care about her at all. Playing, you don't care about princess Yukihimi, you don't care what she does, what, she, what her relationships are, what she's gonna be when she grows up, stops being a princess, you don't care about her at all. Whereas, when you read, let's say, Tolstoy, you care about the princess. So what's the difference? Where's the difference? I would like to argue that when you read a book, the princess, has relationships just like you. She has a past just like you. She has a planned and projected life story. The story is what you're reading, just like you. She has therefore a meaning and a significance and a worth just like you. Whereas if someone has no associations, no meaning and no significance, that is exactly what they are, they're just icons. And therefore, it's important to give things meaning that they have to be embedded in a context and have more and more associations. So this is from the chairman of Google, Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO. Just to show I'm not alone here in my feelings about reading. I worry that the level of interrupt, the sort of overwhelming rapidity of information, is in fact affecting cognition. And this is from the chairman of Google. It is affecting deeper thinking. I still believe that sitting down and reading a book is the best way to really learn something. I worry that we're losing that. Now what do we mean, therefore, by thinking? And I've now remembered, so you don't have to remind me, that this is where I was going to talk about that quote again, thinking is movement confined to the brain. Think, now what is a movement? A movement is a sequence of steps. And I'd like to argue that that's what makes it different from pure feeling. Here's a pure feeling, this is us in a minute. Here we are, this is us. It's when we go upstairs for a glass of wine soon. Uh, now these people have let themselves go. They're in a world stripped of all cognitive content. Yeah, techno, techno, whatever it is, I'm sure you know better. But there's just sounds that mean nothing, that are there as a premium by virtue of the strong sensation that they induce. They're there because they are abstract sensations, the flashing at the colors, let's hope not too many smells. But those things are mean, but they are meaningless. They are there as strong sensations, so you let yourself go. I don't think these people are self-conscious. I don't think the guys, let's hope he's not self-conscious. <laughs> and he's not worried about the past or the future. Whereas, when you are thinking, I would like to suggest the difference between thinking and feeling is that you have an ordered sequence. Um, it can be symbols, as here, where, as you can see, two equals one. Um, or it can be sentences, as here, where one sentence follows another, follows another. Or it can be events, where business plan, hopefully, you have things happening. Or it can be, of course, a beginning, a middle, and end. It can be a story. And that's what, you don't, be, you don't randomly access books like you randomly access search engines. 
you actually have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a causal sequence where one thing leads to something else, so it's a story. That's why I think stories are so important, and fiction informs fact, because it gives you an understanding, and the understanding could be through either through associations or indeed through the temporal sequencing of one thing having happened, so therefore the next thing has a meaning it would not have had in isolation. And I think that's why thinking is just that. It's a temporal sequence, whether it's a rational argument, a business plan, or a story, the book. And this is how we live our lives. We don't live our lives um, randomly. We live it in an ordered sequence, as we've seen, where um, gradually one thing leads to another, um, and gradually this becomes the individual you are that make up your identity and your association, indeed your significance in the world. Um, we talk about that we are, that's why it's so popular. Um, uh, this is your life. It's a story, that's why it's portrayed as a book. And therefore, connections give an even deeper meaning over time, and that's why we value wisdom and why, however sharp and agile a child is, they would never be seen as understanding. Let's take something like a wedding ring. It starts off as something that has attractive sensory properties. It's shiny, it's gold, you can roll it, you can stick things through it. A small child wouldn't know what it was, but would be fascinated possibly by its physical properties. But gradually, you realize that you can put it on your finger and it's called a ring. Then you realize a wedding ring is different from other rings. And then you have a wedding ring possibly of your own. And your view of that wedding ring, your attitude will change as you go from the honeymoon through to the divorce. It will change in different associations. <laughs> so clearly, because more, you know, so something like that isn't just a ring. It has evolved and changed in its meaning and its significance over time. Similarly here, a small child might be scared at someone dressed up as shown here as a ghost. We, of course, have the checks and balances because of our experiences to understand what is happening. And finally, of course, the candle again, where we use metaphor. So connections are hugely important to thought processes in all these ways, whether it's how we view something and understand it, um, how we um, can stop ourselves being frightened, and through to how we can see things as metaphor. So let's go back to the creativity again. I'm suggesting that you have a premium on deconstructing the abstract sensations. Next, you want to bring together unusual things. There's no point in just challenging dogma, um, whether it's in science or arts, you need to then how, make unusual things, like that picture, unusual things come together. A little bit like this, say. This is from Phoebe Collins, um, someone who worked in my lab a while ago, and um, his little daughter, Phoebe, was four when she painted this sheep, um, which is unusual. She's complied with those first two qualities. So she's challenged dogma, and she's brought together unusual elements. You don't have sheep with purple faces and magenta bodies and no feet like this. But why is Phoebe's sheep not hanging in Tate Modern, where Damien Hirst's sheep has had a claim? What's the difference between the two sheep? And I would argue both comply with the first two um, steps, the first two criteria, but only Hirst's sheep actually fulfills the third and most important and hardest criteria, and that is when you look at it, it has a significance, a meaning that Phoebe's sheep does not have. And in order to have a meaning, as I've said, to understand something, you need to put it into a context so it does predicate that when you are doing something, it should trigger an understanding or a meaning in yourself and in others. And that's, of course, the hardest thing, which is why schizophrenic poetry and the children's painting isn't necessarily automatically, I would argue, creativity. Whereas if something can endanger you saying, aha, then that is the most wonderful feeling. It's when you, know, you perhaps see how you can move the kitchen around in a new way or um, when you're in science you can actually understand a finding that before you couldn't understand 
um, or you hear wonderful music or see a painting or read a book that makes you see the world in a new way. And surely that is, that is what creativity is. And when you can do it for yourself, that is the most exciting feeling when you suddenly see the world or understand it or can express it in a way that no one else has ever done before and you can share that with others. And that for me is the essence of individuality. And this is what's argued in these two books. This is the latest one that's come out, shameless plug, on the left, on the right, but both available readily on Amazon um, for this. Um, I would like to suggest, therefore, that when we're thinking about the brain and trying to make the most of the 21st century, um, that we are in a very interesting time that could be either terrible or wonderful. A little bit, it's a bit analogous to climate change in that, um, I call it mind change, uh, we know that with climate change, um, it's highly controversial. There's no one single problem of climate change. It breaks down into lots of different questions of carbon sequestration and water and energy and so on. Um, it's uh, unprecedented for this century, and it impacts globally. Now, I'd like to suggest that the impact of this new technological environment of the brain is comparable, highly controversial, impacts globally, unprecedented and breaks down, as we've seen, into lots of different questions to do with risk-taking and interpersonal skills and understanding and so on. So it's not just one, one issue. Um, but I think there's a very big difference as summarised by, again, holding the brain, is with climate change, as I understand it, it's really all about damage limitation. It's putting the brakes on trying to stop things get worse. Mind change doesn't have to be like that. This could be our most marvellous opportunity to really create a world an environment, if not for ourselves, for our children and our grandchildren, where you can actually foster individuality and respect it in others, um, because we're going to be living longer and healthier lives. What are we going to do when we are old for the second 50 years of our lives? How are we going to have a meaning, a significance to our lives? And I think we're all after meaning. And my own view is that creativity is at the heart of that, the heart of being. It's not by adopting extreme ideologies. It's not by owning the right kind of trainers. It's not by sitting glassy-eyed saying yuck and wow in front of a screen. I think that the answer that Greeks would have been proud of for us is if we can craft an environment, design a world, have an educational process, whatever, where we can actually encourage people to be truly creative so that then they can indeed finally understand the world. Thank you very much. Thank you.